I think it's time to discuss your uh, philosophy of drug use as it relates to artistic endeavor. Welcome to another edition of the Movie Club Podcast. Uh, This is episode number 27 of a semi-regular, or rather semi-irregular, podcast that functions more or less like a book club, uh, where we select a couple movies beforehand, watch them, and get together around a virtual table with a rotating cast of uh, podcasters and uh, talk about them. Um, So today's episode will focus on... David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch and Michael Winter introduce our cast of characters. Uh, now, today's mostly a bottoms Tristram Shandy, a cock and bull story, and let us a Toronto centered uh, podcast, even though we're all in our own little virtual rooms. Um, but we do have uh, one uh, uh, guest from uh, Chicago. Patrick, introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. I'm from Chicago. My name is Patrick. Uh, I'm a co-host of the Directors Club podcast. That's about that's that's about it. I'm unemployed as well, so I can't even can't even like say my day job right but, now. But lots of time to watch movies. Uh, um, yeah. you will notice that uh, the uh, we have a lot of uh, kind of I don't know if it's necessarily fresh blood because a lot of you guys have done shows in the past, but uh, not recently. So, um, Corey, have you done? An episode before with us? Uh, the movie club? No. Uh, row 3, I've been on a few times. Well, welcome. Uh, I usually get recruited to the Row 3 podcast, whichever, whenever you, one of you needs someone to harshly agree with either side of you. But uh, normally I uh, podcast on my own, along with my, uh, my gay black boyfriend, as I like to call him, Mr. Gregory Ashman, on the Critical Mass cast. Uh, we are approaching uh, 100 episodes at this point, and uh, we all operate locally uh, out of Toronto. And Gregory is a fine human being indeed. Um, and also joining us is uh, from Toronto is Bob Turnbull. Hey there, guys. Uh, yeah, Bob Turnbull. I write uh, infrequently for uh, Row 3 as well as my own blog, Eternal Sunshine and Logical Mind, and uh, occasionally get uh, asked to do a podcast here or there. I think I was on the last movie club. I'm not sure you did, if you've done one in between with uh, the driver and the warriors. Yeah, that's uh, we've only done a couple this year, but we have indeed done one in between, uh, and it was uh, with uh, Mister Nobody and Other Earth and oh, Bellflower. I, Super indie, uh, very uh, apparently controversial. Some people hate these movies. Some people love them. But um, today, I don't know. I think we're going with more established filmmakers, uh, well into their respective. Uh, resumes. So um, my name uh, is uh, Kurt, and uh, I'm with Row Three. Normally, Andrew uh, or one of the film junk guys is handling the tech side. God forbid I'm handling it tonight. So we'll see how this works out. Um, it might keep me a little more focused and a little less rambly, but there's no guarantee of that. Um, but uh, yeah, without uh, further ado, it should be mentioned that there will be. 
spoilers abounding everywhere. There's no point in talking about uh, films in this kind of a forum if you don't talk about everything. So we are operating under the expectation that every person has seen these movies. Uh, if you're watching or listening to this and have not seen these movies, I don't know quite what you get out of it, but we hope you do, regardless of how you come into it. But there will be spoilers everywhere. Um, and with that, I think uh, we can start uh, with David Cronenberg's The Naked Lunch. Um, now, normally we have the person who suggested uh the topic introduce it um but andrew uh due to scheduling conflicts and whatnot was unavailable um does anyone have a particular passion uh, to introduce uh, the cronenberg film or would you like me to do it that sounds right up your alley kurt <laughs> okay um so this is a uh, 1991 uh, film. Uh, Cronenberg had quite a number of films under his belt and was pretty much established enough to get himself, uh, I don't know, about $20 million um, to make a, a very prosthetic um, and stylized version of William S. Burroughs' novel. Um, but as you'll see with both of the films that we talk about today, he didn't go so much as to directly adapt the novel and instead made it kind of about like a biopic of the author at the same time using bits of the novel. Uh, so the story focuses on um, Peter Weller's character um, who works as a bug exterminator after a long use of uh, drug uh, habit and he's trying to get straight. Uh, and after he uh, kills his wife who is um, injecting the um, his bug powder as a narcotic, he flees to this Tangiers S town uh, called Interzone uh, to try and deal uh, with what he's done psychologically as well as escape physically. Uh, but um, things get rather weird from there. Uh, his typewriter starts talking to him in the form of the bug. And demands that he writes reports, and uh, he has a lot of um, homosexual propositions offered to him, and he flashes in and out of the reality that is Interzone uh, before he finally realizes that in the process of all this he's writing some sort of crazy novel. Uh, I don't know if uh, anyone else has anything to add to that description of the, uh, of the film. It is rather an unusual film in and of itself, even by Cronenberg standards, it's rather unusual? Uh, yes, that's completely fair to say. Um, I, uh, I, this was one of those Cronenberg movies, and I consider myself kind of a big Cronenberg fan, um, but this was one that I kind of needed to kind of go back into Wikipedia and into the Criterion booklet for like extra levels of sort of insight to try to make sense of it um, both while watching it and this wasn't even my first time watching it um, and just in general both this and the other movie we're going to be talking about kind of require a little bit kind of extra information and um, I think the way you kind of described the movie makes it sound like all of it will make sense if you watch it but I don't even know if that's the case um, I think the movie, the movie is very, like, has, like, this very kind of serious tone, 
and uh, enough plot details that kind of watching it you would would make you believe that it all makes sense you know what i mean that it, that you're not paying enough attention if it doesn't make sense to you but i don't even think that's the case i think it's almost like it's weird enough that you could almost it will really kind of boil down to um a matter of whether or not the aesthetic is working for you and the amount of engagement you're getting out of all the weird shit being put in your face and when was the first time yeah. that you saw this movie, uh, Corey? Because normally we'll go around the table and just come around and say how you first saw it and whether or not this was a rewatch. Um, this is the third time I've seen it. The first time I saw it was way back like on city TV at like 1 in the morning at like a sleepover party and everybody else just wanted to watch the goop, you know, the goop of the mugwumps and laugh that jism was happening everywhere. But I, I don't think the real I don't I don't consider my first real watch of this uh, until like within the last year um, when in advance of Criterion coming out I I, I downloaded it to sort of uh, guess if I wanted to invest that sort of Criterion money into it and uh, I did um, so obviously like I liked it enough um, and obviously just kind of being a Cronenberg fan I needed to have it in the collection um, but it was this second viewing that kind of weighed more heavily on me um and i think i liked it a lot more uh the first time i truly sat down with it last year um as opposed to this time because because i thought i was you know having to look more carefully at everything going on thinking there was something else going on that that not necessarily is there Yeah, it's really a matter, I think, of just getting a, the feeling from the movie. I mean, it's more about um, an artist's struggle to get his art out. I mean, that's it's not even about the, the, the book Naked Lunch. It's about William S. Burroughs' attempt to write the book Naked Lunch. And it's it's more like you said. I mean, you know, if you try and follow the plot, yeah, there's, there's kind of something there. But um, you're really going to get lost in some of the details. You have to kind of go through this. This was his kind of his thought process, his feelings and... Uh, and so forth as he tried to kick heroin and his drug habit while he tried to write this book. And from so, that point of view, I think it was fairly successful. I mean, if, if you take that reading of it, 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 I thought it was very successful from that point of view. It's probably not a movie I'm going to revisit often. I saw it maybe about a decade ago, so I had to come back to it. And I always kind of blended it with Videodrome for some reason. I always got those two kind of uh, mashed together. Um, it worked better for me this time, for sure, but uh, I probably won't necessarily revisit it again for another... Uh, Another eight, nine years, I'd say. Um, so, real quick, I, I think uh, it would probably be rel- relevant to discuss, um, because, again, like like has been noted, this is hardly even an adaptation of Naked Lunch. It's more about William S. Burroughs, the man and the artist, and uh, all, there's all sorts of you know, metatextual elements. How, what kind of connection do any of you have to William S. Burroughs? Are any of you fans of him, or have read the book, the, the book Naked Lunch, or are familiar with his history or um pretty much not at all i mean i i had a cd single that he made with kurt cobain <laughs> but that is probably as deep as it goes with me and burroughs and uh, to be yeah, honest on based out. on what i've seen from the movie and and what i know is i'm not entirely sure i would be into it yeah i've got a recording of a song by material bill laswell's band and uh, not too much more than that just the standard kind of uh knowledge that most people might have i have not read much of his books and yeah i'm kind of a cory in this one it's it's probably not really up my alley what about you kurt 
Well, I think I haven't read much. I've read like odds and ends. Um, I've seen a short film made on him. Uh, there's, of course, his lovely cameo in uh, Drugstore Cowboy. Um, and I don't know. I feel, though, like I, I've read Kerouac and, and, and some like I have a very, I guess, light brush with the um, beat authors, which are represented in the film. And uh, but he was kind of even a bit of an outsider. He was older uh, than them and he wasn't even living in the States when they were kind of, you know, all coming up to uh, prominence. So I don't have a I don't have a huge direct uh, connection. I, I feel his work, though, is right up my alley. I feel kind of like I should have read more of of his stuff, but I feel that there's a certain amount of Burroughs, like like Norman Mailer, and, and uh, there's just certain authors that are injected into the culture enough that, uh, you know, even if you haven't directly and engaged with their work, you feel like there's a, a little bit of osmosis that you've absorbed them in. Like, I, I think I... I, I knew enough coming into this now. Uh, when I saw it in 91 or 92, um, it was it played a rep cinema in Oshawa where I grew up for months. They would play that, Pink Floyd's The Wall, and uh, oddly enough, Robert Altman's The Player, like over and over and over again. And uh, I could never sit through this movie. Um, we'd just go to the movie theater to screw off and, and make noise and stuff. But I... I it took me, I think, three attempts to get through this movie in the early 90s. It wasn't till about eight or nine years ago that I really engaged uh, with the movie. But I, I quite like it now, even though it's still, like, its editing rhythms and, and overall feel uh, baffles me. But I do like uh, the, the Burroughs angle. I, I love the fact that you can adapt a book in this manner. So that's where I come from on it. Now, I do know enough about Burroughs to know that Peter Weller seemed to get his voice down pat. Like, he really seemed to have that uh, that weird kind of tonal quality that Burroughs has. Yeah, it's not an impression, but it definitely gives yeah. the same feeling as when you hear Burroughs speak. But don't you feel that Peter Weller, more than any other actor um, you know, of, of his generation, feels like he should have been born to the previous generation? I know he was Robocop and the villain in uh, the recent Star Trek movie and whatnot, but when you put him in that brown suit and you put the glasses on him, man, does he belong in that universe more than any other <laughs> film I've seen him in. He is wonderful in this movie. Well, when you say that, I mean, the only other performance in the last like couple decades that really feels the same is Billy Bob Thornton as Ed Crane in The Man Who Wasn't There, which is also kind of looking for that obvious kind of retro like several decades past feel. Um, however, I think the difference between the two of them is I actually think that um, uh, Peter Weller for me is maybe the point where I have trouble engaging with Naked Lunch to a certain degree is um, where initially it's like really kind of lays down the kind of offbeat and tone is looking for. Um, over time, it kind of becomes not necessarily droning, but I find he's so kind of disengaged with so much that's happening and he's so like kind of apathetic. And, um, I think there's been a lot of times where both Burroughs and Cronenberg have been described as anti-humanist, um, which is probably a, an inherent problem for me, but, um, more than anything, it kind of just feels like 
since he doesn't really care that much about everything that's happening around him, then it's hard to sort of get involved with it. If if, if the main character doesn't care, then why should I? Um, yeah. So uh, I, yeah, the reason I, I I asked you guys about that is because my I've seen this movie maybe five six times now, and every time it's come from sort of a different uh, point in my familiarity with William S. Burroughs, and I've always felt differently about the movie. So the first time I saw this movie. I was like in high school, it was probably 2004 or something, and it was just, oh, this movie's fucking nuts. And I, you know, was, I just liked watching the things that were weird. And I didn't, you know, like I watched Eraserhead and I would laugh because it's so weird, but I didn't understand it at all. So it was just one of those movies. And then, you know, uh, in college, I got more into drug culture and that sort of thing. And actually, the first time I ever read Naked Lunch, it was an audiobook. And if you if you listen to Naked Lunch as an audiobook, it sounds like the world's longest aristocrat joke because it's just <laughs> the most obscene <laughs> things you've ever heard nonstop in the most beautiful uh, kind of prose. And now I'm I'm actually quite a big uh, fan of William S. Burroughs as a writer. And I should say that this movie is not really the same as reading Naked Lunch. It's not really the same as reading his prose. So, and that is, you know, like, uh, sort of uh, similar to like Hunter S. Thompson. Like the reason his books are worth reading is because he's such a good writer and the way he puts words together is so good. And I, I would say, I would highly recommend people just some of the, yeah, some of the stuff that William S. Burroughs writes. In, In fact, because there's so little context, because you have no idea what's going on and, and because it's all cut up and rearranged and stuff. Uh, it's the actual writing itself that becomes really important. But Isn't that what he calls so, his chapters in his books? Doesn't he call them things like rearrangements? Or The, the, the well, Naked Lunch book is actually far less coherent than the, yeah. uh, than the film. Yeah, Naked Lunch uh, as a book is a series of vignettes that are maybe vaguely like they're arranged in a way that you could sort of maybe get an emotional arc from them but mostly uh it's just cut up and it's mostly fragmentary and jarring and in fact the way it's supposed to be read was william s burroughs said that he wanted people to pick up and just they could just read it anywhere and it's just immediately tap into the, the feeling that he was trying to create so i mean naked lunch is a book that i read about 20 random pages from uh, like you know once a month or so it's i always return to it but i rarely ever read it start to finish but so uh, so the movie naked lunch is nothing like the book naked lunch the movie naked lunch is about is more a biopic and it's more uh it, it takes sort of the william s burroughs aesthetic and it places you inside his head and i think that's why like i often have a big problem with uh, protagonists who are ciphers they're just uh, I usually have that problem, like I'm not, uh, like I'm not engaged because I don't care about what's happening to them because they don't seem to care what's happening. To them. But in this instance, like this movie feels like it is about everything you're seeing is him. It's in his head. You don't know what's real and what isn't, and therefore the only like right response it feels like is for him to have no reaction and because and and to just sort of accept it. And that and that's again more of the the junkie sort of mentality and in that way peter weller's performance seems perfect and if it was more emotional if he emoted more if he got more frightened and mad and scared and sad it it wouldn't it wouldn't play the same 
it wouldn't have that same it wouldn't be as surreal and it wouldn't be as baffling and, it, and the tone would be completely different if his performance was different well, yeah I definitely agree with you there's a few moments in the film where you know his eyes get a bit wider and there's a bit more of that look of surprise and it's, it's funny because I noticed that watching it that that took me a little bit more out of the film than the other moments like you said where he's just accepting of it all and then he just kind of goes along and says, yeah, well, okay, then my typewriter's a bug now. Well, there's a uh, dry laconicness in the in the way he does that that's reminiscent of, of noir. Uh, and I think once you put the top hat on Weller and let him almost play that n- noirish detective, even though he doesn't really detect anything, um, it just it gives that vibe. I, I find it hilarious that um, Ridley Scott stole the title from Blade Runner from a Burroughs book. <laughs> and Blade Runner also has Harrison Ford doing that, I've seen all this before, kind of noir, until he finally is deeply enough submerged in everything that he has to accept <laughs> that he is in over his head. Now, now Patrick, you said you, you know Burroughs' writings a little bit more. The, uh, the actual passages in the movie that he's typing on the typewriter, the one or two sentences that we get from his reports... Are those actually taken from the book or from some of Burroughs' writing? Because those struck uh, some of the, the more interestingly written passages of the movie. Yeah, some of them are. Uh, I, I, and I, I'm not, I don't have a, a cata- sort of a catalog uh, sort of knowledge of his work. So, But um, I know some of them are for sure. Some of the lines, some of the longer monologues that Peter Weller gives, most famously the, the talking asshole, is directly from Naked Lunch and from his other writings. I don't think the one about uh, homosexuality being an agent's best cover story is. Um, but yeah, like that is where David Cronenberg decided to sort of inject uh, the actual work and actually translate what is happening in the book or, you know, uh, the, the, the prose in the book and put it into the movie. I've seen um, Burroughs actually comment that, um, the homosexuality angle is not something he was happy with. That he se- it seemed to be such like a side effect, or, or where it seemed uh, to him it was much more intrinsic to the character in his writing. Well, uh, yeah, no, that, that I, yeah, I read that there was a, I believe in the in the Criterion booklet they have William S. Burroughs giving his reaction to the movie, and he's mostly happy, but he does have some reservations and that's one of them and i think that's just a side effect of the fact that this is cronenberg's vision this is david cronenberg's film through and through and mm-hmm. william s burroughs was a was a was a queer man he he's had all i don't think he was necessarily gay but he's you know he's he had gay sex he he may have had pedophilic sex at, at some point like he he had a wife like so his writing is going to be coming to that point Whereas David Cronenberg is a straight man and his work is so inherently sexual and about, you know, like, and, you know, vaginal and that sort of thing. I think it's just going to come out differently just because it's a different artist, you know? It's funny because you you say, I I agree that his work is sexual, but I think, I think his work is sexual in a way that I think of Kubrick as sexual in that I think that they put sexuality everywhere, but it's put in such like sort of an alien way that it becomes asexual and kind of something you don't want to touch. <laughs> like it makes sexuality something like not perverse, but like, you know, like 
just Otherly? disgusting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's like, it's well, like a cow udder. What do you mean? It's like... Yeah, well, they approach it like scientists. They're very cold and clinical. And the way they... I mean, the most of their films are just... No matter what the subject is, they're very cold and clinical in the way they examine the subjects. In the essay that accompanies the Criterion release of The Naked Lunch, there's one... Um, little sentence near the end there uh where the uh the writer of the the essay says um uh when you watch Cronenberg's work and I think he he's also intimating that it, it it's Burroughs work as well um that you get the sense that every human interaction contains the possibility of homicide and that there's not a direct um empathic or emotional connection it's purely like an other, like everyone is in their own little bubble. And you certainly get that um, with the Kerouac and the Ginsburg character who kind of talk to each other, but talk at each other. And their whole relationship in this movie has that kind of vibe to it. I mean, I know that there's some autobiographicalness to it and there's this whole element of how do you write, but it also throws the writer into their own personal little bubble and I think a lot of Cronenberg's work is like that actually I love that initial conversation between those two friends when they were talking about rewriting whereas one of them was talking about having to come back to a time and time again and trying to do the best that he can otherwise he feels so guilty about it whereas the other one is saying how dare you do that it's a sin to actually censor your best thoughts which are your initial ones I thought that was a really interesting kind of counter to it was it struck me that Burroughs was somehow stuck in between those two well or at least the, that's what he was uh, initially and the, then he well, he says that famous line about exterminate all rational thought is the conclusion that I've come to the There's uh, that stuff going on with the um and again I still don't entirely comprehend it but I mean later in the film when he's got the two different kind of uh he's got the mug mudwump or whatever kind of typewriter and he's got the bug typewriter and he's insisting that you know one you'll do you'll get the best work done on on one or he misses the other and um and i thought that was all kind of interesting in that regard um but at the same time i think going back to my kind of problems with peter weller and trying to connect with him like in any emotional or sort of engaging level was that um the kind of overall frustration about or sort of difficulty in sort of putting a piece together I think that's where I, I, you know, like I had a hard time sort of kind of feeling that sort of frustration there um, because, again, he's going along with everything like you're all saying. Um, and maybe this is a complete diversion, but when you were all talking about um, it from that angle, I was thinking across all the way to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which has another writer. And in that case, like that actor is like completely over the top and cartoonish, like, like, Looney Tunes with his facial expressions and all his own hallucinations and I'm actually not a big fan of that movie either and I have a hard trouble connecting with that character because it's completely in the other direction and um, I guess that's just something with me and my own engagement issues but um, I <laughs> You think just I don't need, like substance need, abusing I need, authors I need, some, <laughs> I need some sort of, maybe it's me in drug culture and there's just something that just turns me off with it or something but um, Wait, it, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish. 
Um, I don't know. There's just there's just something kind of in the way. I think there, there needs to be some sort of port for me to sort of plug in to this character, or there needs to be some extra level of uh, frustration that if it's not coming through his own facial expressions, then it needs to maybe kind of like th- through like a like sort of like like you know there's a very jazzy soundtrack. Like if it, if it all of a sudden got like kind of heavier or more bombastic, a lot of cymbal crashes or if there's something different with the editing, just something else to sort of express what he can express with his face. I want to stop you right there, Corey, uh, because I'm convinced, and I find this with all Cronenberg, I'm a big fan of David Cronenberg, and I I like almost every film he's ever made, but I would actually argue that um, his editor, Ronald Sanders, who's pretty much edited every single one of his pictures, does not edit films like any other editor working, and that guy's voice is in these films so much. The the weird floating disconnect that you get with so many Cronenberg pictures, I think, is due to his editing rhythms. And, and it's it's his editing style is very no-nonsense, but it always hangs around for a few extra beats and isn't flashy or showy or even remotely ADD. Uh, and and I, I believe that everything that you just described... And you're attributing it to Peter Weller's performance or or the way the movie's written, I think could be just lumped right into the actual editing of the film. Well, the thing is, in, in The Fly or in Cosmopolis or in even like kind of his more straight up like history of violence, like Eastern Promises kind of work, like that kind of works out fine for me. But in some in this case particularly, I think it just... It just sticks out for me more often. And uh, going into that Criterion booklet yet again, which we're all seem to be doing, um, there's a there's a nice piece that talks about how um, Cronenberg himself, as a filmmaker, is like he has no um, cinematic influences; that he's completely literary. So that sort of very matter of fact kind of um, style of editing kind of maybe tied into that. Um. Uh, so, so you brought up Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and I think that is, that's actually a really interesting movie to bring up. Um, especially, I mean, the two movies we've chosen, Tristram Shandy and Naked Lunch. What you know, what they have in common is they're they're very meta and they're they're very postmodern and they're very sort of unusual approaches to adapting a work that was considered unfilmable or unadaptable. Um, and I think well, they're more kind of talking about somebody else rather than the piece that they're adapting, right? Um, and I think that's uh, that is actually I think if you want I think if you I mean for me personally the strengths of Naked Lunch and Tristram Shandy if you want a, a counter to that I'm not a fan at all of uh, Fear and Loathing Las Vegas the film and I think that is someone who uh, I think. Uh, um, I, 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 I think in that instance, Terry Gilliam was basically, he just filmed the book, the events of the book, and he just had someone do an impression of the author, and then he sort of made it all weird and trippy, and it was just, it uh, it didn't have a strong intent, uh, authorial intent, it didn't seem to have a strong thing it was saying, it was just sort of depicting drug addicts acting crazy, which can be very tedious, Um uh, whereas opposed uh, naked lunch for me is uh the reason you don't I, I don't ever worry about the fact that i'm not invested in the story and i am never invested in the story 
is because it is uh, not about the events of the story necessarily. Uh, it's about uh, it's exploring like the, the individual scenes in Naked Lunch that really speak to me are when he's drunk and he's arguing with his typewriter. Like that is that to me is one of the greatest uh, scenes of, of about being an artist creating art that I've ever seen. Where he's drunk and he's arguing with the typewriter and he's arguing about whether or not it was fate that he killed his wife. Like there's a very easily a more traditional version of that where it's just a drunk yelling at a typewriter that isn't talking back because <laughs> instead of being a bug, it's just a typewriter. I would believe anyway. that that is actually Francis Ford Coppola's twist with Val Kilmer, uh, The Night Was, uh, if anyone's yeah. seen that. There you go. I, I have not seen that. But um, it's and, and there's a lot of scenes like that that are really actually when they're taken out of the fact that the plot of the movie they're in doesn't make much sense, they're just very compelling scenes, uh, depictions of guilt and depictions of the sort of, and I, I mean, this probably best explored in Drugstore Cowboy, but one of the things I really like about this is that, uh, about this movie, is that Bill Lee knows that he is hallucinating and knows that he is on drugs, um, but he'll still do what his hallucinations told him to do. He's still going over and he's going to seduce Joan Frost. Um, and he's not necessarily sure why, but there's that, that's that drug addict sort of logic where there's just a momentum going. You just got to keep moving forward and you sort of fade in and out of, um, of being lucid. And there all of those individual parts of the film, I think are very true and they're very interesting. They say a lot about William S. Burroughs and, they're beautifully shot, and the score. Uh, I think Howard Shore did the score for this one as well. Yeah, he there. does all of this, but then they also had um, some jazz musicians do an extra component to layer on top. So it's kind of a hybrid score with more than one author. So maybe yeah, I, like so the maybe the I score is jazz. I just don't like jazz. I don't like yeah, the score. Yeah, could be a, like, This is specifically <laughs> free jazz, and even the yeah. Middle Eastern yeah. music <laughs> later on is, is very free in its concept and being, I, I, I think the, it, it matches the movie very well. If you ask me, I think yeah, I think the jazz is so essential to the tone, and again, the art direction is amazing. It does have that weird noirish kind of quality, but it's also uh, the, the color is really interesting. In this movie, it's a lot of browns it's not so much light and shadow it's and greens uh, i feel that yeah. a lot of what i mean again it's it's uh cronenberg's uh, usual cinematographer was it shuzitsky peter shuzitsky um but i feel like this is christopher doyle cinematography before christopher doyle was doing it like i fell in love with the blu-ray version of watching this uh movie with just that murky green brown palette it, it's really wonderful to look at and yeah, I, I kind of felt this is one of the the most handsome cronenberg films uh i'd seen up until that time i, I think it, it it came just after dead ringers and the fly and the, those weren't exactly ugly but uh, it still struck me as one of the, the prettiest of his movies really when you think about the fact that this was probably shot on a some sound stage in toronto but you still get that tangiers feel like they really do sell the exterior sequences i i was pleasantly blown away revisiting it this time just how convincing the new york 
Interzone, all the different locations. Like, actually, you, you mentioned Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Would this not be a great film to pair up with Barton Fink? Because it feels oh, like an author is... drowning in his own sweat and wallpaper glue. Like it just yeah, they would um... certainly go together in the Judy Davis Film Festival. <laughs> there you go, and Judy. Well, yeah, no, lovely. I never even made that connection. She's wonderful in this as well. First of all, I think so far on the parameters that we've been discussing it, it sounds like I'm beating the movie up and I'm not a fan of it. I do actually like the movie. Um, I think the things that really kind of engage me are some of the stuff we haven't talked about, which is kind of like on the very, very base level of kind of weirdness, kind of visual aesthetic and uh, performances of kind of almost all of the side characters that you're going on the way. Because I think, I think we all know like if, if a main character is kind of a bit of a cipher or kind of monotonatic, monotone or if there's like a, a peewee's big adventure kind of movie it's like all the people you meet along the way all the side characters that road trip movie kind of thing that really makes it worthwhile um but beyond that going to barton fink um i think though the main difference between this and that is that um i think the first time i saw barton fink i was actually kind of bored by it um but um really that movie i think counter to this though barton fink really is kind of very very kind of interesting and maybe I've just kind of gotten attached to him from just kind of the way he's staring at everyone, the way he's just so pompous and such an asshole and how he thinks he's the common man. And I just think there's a lot more kind of going on in Barton Fink with that main character than this one. I, like, I think it's going back to I, Fear and Loathing, um, like we were talking about before. I, I probably enjoy Fear and Loathing better. I think I'd probably watch it more. I'm more entertained by it. But I think Naked Lunch has far more to say about uh, the artistic process of an author and even probably more so than Barton Fink. I mean, I, I, I same thing with you, Corey. I, I didn't like that as much the first time I saw it. Second time, I certainly appreciated it more. It's not one of my favorite Coen Brothers films on it. And I think this does a lot more to really put you in the mindset and the head, well, specifically of Burroughs, but even of somebody just, just anguishing and struggling with their art. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'll say, I like, I like Barton Fink more than I like Naked Lunch. But I think that... Uh, con, uh, conflating Barton Fink being it's I mean it's Barton Fink's a funnier movie it's got more great lines it's got more perfor- like it's got the Tony Shalhoub performance and all, all these kinds of really funny performances it's more superficially entertaining for sure which isn't to say that it doesn't have a lot to say I think Barton Fink is a really really great film but I think uh, just because uh, Naked Lunch definitely makes you work more and definitely uh, is is not as uh, inviting. It, I wouldn't say that it doesn't have as much to say as Barton Fink. I'm just... still not entirely sure what Naked Lunch does say. Like, if you were to put it into one sentence. Oh well, no. It's, it says multiple things. Writing is it's, hell. It's, it definitely, you can't. <laughs> yeah, put it one say, it's a night. No, it, well, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, it's writing as hell. It, it it says a lot about again, like like sort of junky mentality, junky logic. It says a lot about guilt. It says a lot about the relationship between pain of one's life and how that comes out through art. It, it and also um, at the end of the naked lunch, they're going off uh, to um, uh, I can't remember the name of the the. The, the sort of zone or whatever, but some fictional Anexia. city or... Yes. What's An- that? Anexia. Anexia. Ah, yes. Okay, so they're going to Anexia, and he has reclaimed, quote-unquote, Joan. He has 
you know, he's come out of his, uh, you know, he's escaped the sort of den of drugs that, that where he was addicted. He is a writer now. Uh, and if, if you want to view this in terms of William S. Burroughs' life, you know, William S. Burroughs was a well-respected writer and he was an artist and he was able to indulge himself in so many different formats and he, but he never escaped it. And at the very end, they say, prove you're a writer and he has to go through it all over again. And I think that is one of the most moving parts of the movie for me is the idea of he, you can't escape, uh, you know, art, uh, your anguish will be processed through art, but it will not be vanquished through art. And I think that's really interesting. Um, well, well uh, e- equally interesting is um, another book, another circle of hell that I've just entered into, even though this is what I do. I mean, that's certainly Anexia is just the interzone of his next novel. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's yeah. kind of brilliant in a way. But the actual act of writing is so sexualized in this. It's such relief and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's literally orgasmic. Literally, he, he has a typewriter that spews milky liquid when it likes what he writes. Like, uh, well, and, and and not only gets- that, it's violent because, I mean, again, Burroughs is on record of saying that when he accidentally shot his, one of his girlfriends or wives <laughs> by doing a William Tell uh, reenactment, uh, which you see twice in this film, um, he credits that act with making him an author. So, uh, I, I mean, the fact that it's showcased very in a very literal fashion in this movie. It's it's directly in there um, and well, in there twice to underscore he, that. He essentially, sorry, Curdy, he, he essentially shoots his muse because he says you know, at some point that he can't write without her and that at the end of the movie he has to shoot her again. So it's like he actually does shoot his muse and he has to find himself all over again. So it's that kind of perpetual nightmare of of trying to find you know, a way to make sense of your surroundings and experiences. I would even go as far as to say is the shooting is his muse, and that's what the nightmare is. And and now you're into full-blown Cronenberg territory in the uh, the synthesis of violence, sex, and media all together. That's why it's such a great fit of material to director. In the same way that J.G. Uh, Ballard's Crash is a great fit for Cronenberg and equally off-putting and strangely edited and and in fact those two films i think have more in common than any of cronenberg's other work uh i just i find that creation as an act of destruction seems to be a, a, a pretty strong theme through his work and never is it more right on the surface as it is here as this the writing is hell kind of thing i mean I'm of two minds on on this whole thing regarding all that, though. I mean, when the author is kind of, like, kind of drugged up and going and doing which or the other, like, the whole, like, writing is hell kind of thing, it doesn't, on one hand, it doesn't strike as huge a chord with me because I think once a writer or artist is doing that, they're putting up roadblocks, that sort of work. But on the other hand, you know, like, I list... Like, I was at an Alice in Chains show last night, and the lead singer of that band was high on everything for until the day he died, like, 15 years ago. Um, so, but at the same time, like, if you try to articulate 
his writing process and was talking about like all the drugs and everything he had to put in the way for it. It's a little bit, I don't know. Again, the relation issues is, is, is in the way for me to sort of really truly kind of agree with it. I mean, when I think of kind of the writing process and being expressed in film and I think about, obviously adaptation is another movie out there that we talk about and kind of us like that movie and how, Charlie Kaufman is talking about writer's block and blocking his frustrations and kind of uh, Hollywood's ideas of what makes a script versus his own sort of brain trying to work out what is something unique and uh, and what makes him tick. That that appeals a lot more to me um, than um, kind of a guy who's does every drug that's been in front of him and has gone through a lot of kind of just these kind of almost like you think of Oscar Wilde has done all these things, you know what I mean? Then well, it doesn't, I, it doesn't connect to me as well. For me, Corey, it, it, the, the, the whole movie is summed up in this, uh, in this lovely quote right from within the movie um, where uh, it's, I think it is time to discuss your philosophy, philosophy of drug use as it relates to artistic endeavor. I mean, that's, that's wonderful because not only is it literally in the movie, but it also equates writing or equates creating art with addiction like there's a you know the the old saw of i i do this because i'm compelled for some reason to do this and the fact that that is operating at at least three different you know kind of layers in this movie is wonderful i i will say Corey, i definitely understand uh someone who doesn't relate to you know that that sort of the idea of the artist destruction and the art of uh, the anguish of going in art, like if, if that, because that to me is the primary reason I relate to this movie. So I can, and this movie does not give, unlike something like Barton Fink, where someone who doesn't necessarily relate to the character of Barton Fink, there's so much of that that is just funny and engaging, and so many different you know char- crazy characters, great scenes, stuff. This movie does not make it easy uh, letting you in. Um, but uh, I think I think it should be said. This movie also, I, I feel more and more every time I see it. This movie is not only postmodern in the way that it's self-referential, but postmodern in the way that it feels like it's part of a larger text. Which is to say that this movie does not. No one says the the name William S. Burroughs. No one, you know, um, this this isn't a. Bio, traditional biopic if someone walked into this movie and didn't already understand all of the things that david cronenberg is drawing from then that's the context that you need in order to really to in order to make sense of it i don't think this movie would be engaging at all i think this movie works as part of a larger understanding um and in that way i think it's sort of interesting and postmodern in a way that like few other films have actually try that like there's like what uh like uh southland tales has that oh you there's the three graphic novels that explain everything but very few films uh are so off-putting as to uh not have all of the context built into the actual film itself Uh, but in a way that also kind of fits william s burroughs writing where it's more about engaging it on a moment to moment or a sentence to sentence level than it is about uh, building a complete picture. Well, there's I'm starting uh, to wonder if the, uh, if modern culture has kind of left the kind of William S. Burroughs kind of archetype 
or even Hunter S. Thompson archetype behind. I mean, if you, I don't know if anyone watches the TV show Girls, but I mean, if you watch, there's a, a season two episode where John uh, Cameron Mitchell shows up and, uh, you know, he's basically uh, playing like an editor from Vice magazine, essentially, and he wants to hire, uh, uh, or, or actually it was a different episode, or uh, she, they want to hire Hannah to basically just write an article what it's like to do cocaine. You know, like this sort of modern idea of like like a, a Vice magazine article where someone's just writing what it's like to be on heroin or something like that. It's become kind of a cliche. It's almost like like if you write about being on drugs or if you have to do drugs and then to make your art, you're really almost pathetic and you're a lesser artist now if you have to rely on that sort of thing. I dis- I, I disagreed with that a, a fair bit. Uh, I think that there's a certain sense that the naked lunch um, discourages the novel as an act of tourism. Like it really does want to immerse you in a deeper way than just getting thrills from watching someone else create something while on drugs. Um, I mean, it reminds me of the, the, Bertolucci adaptation of Paul uh, Bull's Sheltering Sky, where they literally, I think this movie does as well. The Naked Lunch even has a, a line of dialogue where it, where it says the difference between, you know, like a tourist and someone who's deeply traveling in that environment. And I believe both The Sheltering Sky and Naked Lunch, and maybe that's why it's off putting to people, is, is that it wants to immerse you in a far deeper way than a lot of just, oh, look at that, that's something you won't be able to do so you can watch it in a movie. I think it challenges you to to dive as deep as you can into this thing rather than just skim along the surface. Well, the only other movie that's come across in the last couple of years that has really kind of tried to recreate like a drug experience or something like that I could think of off the top of my head is really like Enter the Void. And I hate that movie. Oh. So it's, Love uh, that to, movie. Do not get Kurt <laughs> Love that movie. Okay, well, okay, so I think that's actually a really interesting point you bring up. And I think that, to an extent, anyone who is a drug addict is pathetic, whether or not they're an artist or whatever. And I think that's actually one of the things that Naked Lunch is very much about. It's very much about the depths and depravity and how pathetic one can get when they are in the grips of something like that. Um, More so the book than the movie. The movie... You don't see him, you know, sweating and vomiting and all that sort of thing. It's because, again, it would just break the the illusion of the, of the you know, the um, um, the emotionless character. But I don't think you. I mean, I don't think you can look at any modern culture and say, "Well, drugs didn't help." Like, I can't. I don't think you can look at. Well, I, I'm a Bill Hicks fan, so I understand your point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, but what I'm saying is that I think something like The Naked Lunch, as it exists when you're seeing kind of like the cool trippy bugs and all the nice effects that Mr. Cronenberg has delivered for us, which are going to last much longer than the lives of any one of us or whatever, um, it it kind of de facto almost glamorizes drug use. I mean, all the shitty things that, you know, um, Burroughs went through and all the nights up, tripping out of his head or kind of all the brain cells that are died they that's like gone away and the lasting memory of sorry the the legacy of of the artwork that came out of it uh like by it actually us talking about it today 
almost kind of justifies his hell. Well, wasn't his drug use somewhat inducing other... Like, I mean, I don't think Burroughs, even though he writes about it like it's horrible, he he wasn't, like, trying to get people to shy away from it or anything. I I think the the, 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 yeah. the the books bring you in. Like, they, they, they actually say, come and... You know, join oh, in on things. You know, I'm sure, it's inspired much more drug use than it's turned away. Exactly, oh, and and but I think that there's like I mean, when he published, well, one of the editions of the book literally had the obscenity, the the transcript from the obscenity trial on the book as the preface to the book. I mean, that's wonderful, in my opinion. But the, but the movie itself, I mean, not knowing his writings that well, not knowing, you know, Naked Lunch, the book, at all, the movie itself, I, I don't really see it glamorizing it at all. I mean, it, it doesn't go to the depths of what Patrick was describing that was in the book. But uh, the Peter Weller character doesn't really strike me as a happy guy who really enjoys his drugs. But Nobody he, in this yeah, movie... But he looks, he looks fucking fun. cool. He does look <laughs> fucking cool in this movie. I agree. I, I, I believe he has a swagger. Yeah, a of that, but you know, he's always got that kind of lidded look, the the red eyes. Judy Davis in this movie, especially <laughs> the you know, uh, Joan Lee, when she's playing Joan Lee initially, <laughs> there's a woman who's just you know, her 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 life is wasted. I I don't see it. I mean it, that's that's it, I don't it, think it's, it's trying to say that you become I cool. I think it's Sorry? trying to say the world around you becomes cool cooler. Like you live a better oh, yeah, well, life around you. What you're describing is basically the same argument uh, that people have made that there's no such thing as an anti-war movie because war is inherently so exciting on film that no matter what message you put in there, people are going to they're going to walk away going, wasn't it cool when that tank exploded that building or whatever? Um, and there is, to an extent, drug, drugs are exciting and they're, they can be you know, and it, it can be exciting and scary and, uh, you know, this movie is not fun, but, uh, like, they, that it, but I would say that even the fact that drugs will destroy you and, and drugs will lead you down an irreparable road that, that there's no coming back from, I think that is as much of an appeal as anything to a certain kind of person. There's uh, a again, romanticism. Not to speak too much. Yeah. Not to speak too much about uh, uh, myself or the the drugs that I've used in my life, but like um, I think there's no really getting around that, and I don't think the solution is to not talk about it. I think the solution is I mean this this is a film uh, that is not fun to watch. This isn't even Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. This isn't you don't watch him do drugs and then it's wee and it's like this is a film that is really depressing and it's got a really uh, bleak tone and. Honestly, one of the reasons I'm not, not a bigger fan of the movie is, and this is something I, it's a problem I have with a lot of Cronenberg's films, uh, but I'm not the world's biggest uh, David Cronenberg fan, but a lot of his other movies that I like more, they just have more inherently uh, interesting plots where you want to know what happens next and everything, but just the way the film sort of is languid and it just hangs there and it just sort of lazily drifts from one part to the next with no real evidence of cause and effect like i think this movie does a lot to accurately at least portray the hell of drugs while not well i think wisely not making that the focus 
of William S. Burroughs as a character because there's a ton of junkies. There's a ton of people who are addicted to morphine and heroin, but William S. Burroughs is the one who wrote Naked Lunch and wrote all about that writing. And there's a lot more to him than, oh, he did drugs and he was so fucked up that he wrote wacky stuff, but it happened to be really groundbreaking. No, he's a brilliant and tormented man beyond the drugs. And I think this could have been a movie about the hell of drugs and it could have been just him, you know, wandering uh, and, and going in and out of consciousness and throwing up and having the shakes and all that. You mean Requiem for a Dream? Yeah, it could have been that. It could have turned into that, but that wouldn't have been about William S. Burroughs anymore. That would have been about drug users. Do you think, users. though, that Cronenberg could have gone further to try to try to sort of express the actual sort of brilliance or quality of his writing? I don't know, uh, uh, Corey. When you see um, Peter Weller actually deliver passages from Burroughs' work inside the movie, holy shit, does that movie come alive. Like, I, I just... There's three or four times when he's reading direct passages, and it's friggin' magnificent. I, I would actually kind of agree with Corey as far as saying... I mean, the, he does a little bit. Like, he, ha, right, he, has the, uh, he has the Jack Kerouac and the Allen Ginsberg stand-ins talk about how brilliant he is, and he has the few passages where he's reading it but but when you mix it in with the secret agent stuff it kind of dilutes it a bit i think absolutely absolutely and i would definitely say that it does not get across uh, it doesn't get across the brilliance of him as a writer but again this being a uh, you know a a postmodern film and this being feeling like part of a larger thing i think the fact that you're going in knowing it's william s burroughs if you know who he is, that is a given, and you don't want to see a movie waste any more time. Like I believe the, the phrase is uh, "Hey, geography." I think is the the phrase. Yeah, like, yeah. like the worst the worst part of any biopic is the part where Johnny Cash starts playing uh, the song, and then you got, everyone turns to each other, and goes, "I think they're a genius." Oh, this this will change everything. Like, yeah, we get it. We're watching a movie about Johnny Cash. You know, like, uh, I, and I think this movie wisely it it, it eliminates any. I mean, wisely to, I think, the actual film's benefit, not so wisely to making it accessible to people who don't already have an interest in its subject, but I think it wisely eliminates a lot of that sort of stuff in favor of really just never letting you outside of his head. But I mean, Patrick, for example... So when it comes to the secret agent thing, the, the one line that uh, that kind of made that for me was when uh, they said, an unconscious agent is an effective agent. And I, I kind of like that, uh, you know, sort of pointing to, you know, let your unconscious stream out into your art. And I, I, I kind of like that, uh, the way they kind of brought that into it. Because, yeah, initially the secret agent piece was, okay, that's a little bit too kind of plot-driven. But it, it sort of tied itself together when they came to that point. Well, and it gets back to the Ginsburg-Kerouac argument at the beginning of, is all this editing self-censorship? Uh, you know, when you massage it into something? Or is it better to just better to puke it out and just you know no one does that better than Kerouac who wrote the one uh, on the road and just a continuous piece of paper um you know that, that I think that it just comes back to writing styles the same way they make each one of the typewriters to have its own personality uh and whatnot in that even the tools become a factor in writing style there's so many elements that go in to make up a, an author's particular style and i think the movie does a really good job at uh showing as much as telling that kind of stuff 
I don't know. Those those typewriters have more vis- visual personality than intellectual personality. They all sound the same, and they um, talk with their asshole. Yeah, um, but uh, going back to kind of the idea that we're talking about about kind of undermining Burroughs being brilliant or whatever. Um, Burroughs talked about how apparently, like in the book, I guess he's very more specifically talking about heroin or this drug or the other drug. And the movie, obviously, it's you got your black meat, you got your mugwum jism, and you got um, your you know powder, bug, bug powder uh, dust. Yeah, but um, and obviously, with all the kind of visual stuff that, which on a very base level, works as being kind of cool from a production standpoint. Do you think that at all, like the layers of kind of kind of visual weirdness that Cronenberg puts on top of it, kind of can also sort of put a layer between the pure purity of what Burroughs is going for and like and the idea of it being genius and it just kind of between that and it just being kind of a bunch of random nonsense that's kind of cool well I, I think one of the things that and this is this is something that I, I think William S. Burroughs himself noted in again this is in the booklet where he wrote about his reactions to the film one of the key things that uh, that um, is changed is that there's no actual heroin there's no actual morphine. It's bug. It's bug powder, and he it's said that it was a master stroke, actually. And yeah, yeah, and it's and what it does is it removes it a layer of reality from it purposefully, and it's trying to make you think about uh, addiction and what drives someone in more abstract terms it, as a way of more tying the tying it into the creative process. And I think one of the things that uh, one that's really fascinating about the eight, the secret agent stuff is it simultaneously is gives it sort of a noirish feel. The idea that he's walking into these rooms with this plan that no one else knows, and he has to keep his cover story straight. Like it, 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 it contributes to that nor, noirish aspect, but it also is very much like that is. And it, and again, I just I've read a lot about drug addiction and in both from authors who are drug addicts and just, you know, about the realities of drug addiction in the 20th century and all that. Like, that is what a junkie is. A junkie is someone who has a plan because the problem is they have 24 hours in a day and then they have to, and they don't have a job probably, and what they need to do is get enough money to get some more heroin or more junk or whatever they need. Um, So they, it's all about the plans they create. It's all about these little schemes and these devices and stuff and the way they run through the world is like a secret agent. They are, or they're operating on this other thing, and they're motivated. And the, these could be crazy ideas, and they could be ideas they thought of while they were high, but they're still following through when, with when they're sober, such as you know, seducing Joan Frost. And like, I think that's very much a junkie thing as much as it is a noir thing. And I think it's also an artist thing. I think when you are uh, an artist, especially, you know, a writer or someone who literally all you have is yourself and the paper that you're writing on or, you know, the, the blank computer screen, uh, what you're doing, no one's telling you what to do. You're just doing something other, something else is motivating you and saying, you have to put these words on this paper. And I, and it's, and it's this idea that it's, again, it's the secret motivation that no one else sort of knows about, and especially if you're writing the kind of stuff William S. Burroughs writes about that's so outside the mainstream, it's also going to be the kind of stuff that you're not even sure you want other people to see, or you need to make sure the right people see it, or else you're going to be taken up on incentive charges, which of course he was. Like, There's a lot about the secret agent plot that, while not actually compelling on its own, 
I don't necessarily care about, ooh, I wonder how his agent's going to go. Oh, he's going to get caught. I don't really care about any of that. The way – what it says about all of those things really makes it feel like a perfect choice to me. And well, again, it's it's the kind of movie where uh, I think William S. Burroughs is a genius. That should be taken for granted. If you have a movie about Shakespeare, you don't need ever need a scene where someone talks about how amazing his writing is. That should just be a given. That's not information the audience needs to be given. And – Again, William S. Burroughs is not Shakespeare. It is not – he's not even – I don't think he was an average person on the street. They would know who he was. And that is the problem with – that is a problem if you want to make a film that's accessible um, to people who aren't familiar with him. But if you are – if you want to make a film that really dives into him and doesn't worry about uh, covering up all the William S. Burroughs 101 stuff, then I think that hammering home that he's a brilliant writer is not necessary. The – idea of the secret agent i think plays very well into william s burroughs writing and that it it did have that you know get high and drop out of the typical society power struggle thing like this is a way to visualize that in a movie and i think it works pretty effectively uh the other thing i wanted to say was when you're talking about the junkies lives their life in a perpetual plan making it reminds me i don't know if either of anyone's seen um dj caruso's the salton sea where they totally turn that on its ear and they have a bunch of junkies while they're high concoct a heist in their own minds to steal i don't know what it is it's like uh charlton heston's kidney stones or something <laughs> bizarre and they just play it up exactly like you said in, in that it's a uh, it's just a scheme because they need to get something and they, they, they think in terms of that sort of scheme mentality. And, and I think that, yeah, the, the, the secret agent stuff and the report writing and you have four layers of masters, whether it's writing, drug use, addiction, sex, um, deviance, uh, guilt. I, I mean, the, there's no doubt that William Lee in The Naked Lunch is a slave to all of his psychological self-imposed psychological masters and it, and it's visualized in a pretty compelling way I, I think on screen also i mean just the idea of the secret agent what william s burroughs was doing to culture with his writing was basically disinformation like he's basically an enemy agent to the conformity to the establishment <laughs> like he's spreading materials that is meant to cause confusion and disinformation and unrest and all, and all the sorts of things that the beat writers were trying to accomplish. And that other way, which uh, I only just actually just I just thought of, that is a very much a really interesting way of depicting a writer like him is as a secret agent. Well, because, as well as a counterintelligence agent. Yes, exactly. So, does anyone have anything else they want to say on the Naked Lunch, Bob? Um, I was just going to say when he said it, it wasn't, uh, you know, it was hard to make this mass appeal. It, it certainly proved out that because it, it barely made back about fifteen percent of its budget. It only made like two and a half million, I think, gross when it uh, when it came out. So, uh, so that was proved quite uh, quite true. But here we are talking about it. Yeah, well, well, yeah, it, it's 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 kind of lasted from that point of view, but from a mass appeal point of view, uh, it didn't quite hit. It. And that's not a criticism. That's just you know, that's just the point. Um, I, I did want to say also uh, the the additional cast uh, Scheider, Roy Scheider, and Ian Holm I thought were uh, were terrific in it. I I loved every moment they were on screen. 
As as a Canadian, uh, do you did you did you not find it weird that the guy playing Jack Kerouac was the same guy who played um, Da Vinci in Da Vinci's Inquest, which I believe is a, a television show that most people know about, but no one's ever actually watched. But <laughs> I, I have indeed seen that show, and, and I do like Nicholas Campbell. I thought he was uh, also perfect in this film. And uh, another bit of weird Canadiana genre thing. I don't know if it was his first movie, but he has a tiny, tiny role. Um, is it Julia Richling? Yeah, he was yeah. one of the, the that that was something I never noticed in other viewings, and it just brought a certain secret thrill that Julian Richings exists inside this movie. Isn't that fantastic? And lastly, the uh, the other the actor that played the one uh, homosexual guy that keeps trying sedu- to seduce him. It's not Udo Kier, but it looks like Andy Warhol era. Udo Kier. <laughs> so that kind of brought a thrill to me as well. The people have great faces. Julian Sands. I mean, even Ian Holm, who, I mean, Ian Holm does this sort of thing in his sleep. Like, he's really good at it. And um, he's great here. But he has that great, like, he just, he wears a suit. He really wears a suit well in this environment. And he just plays his very tiny role to, uh, uh, to perfection. And what about uh, Peter Beretsky, who plays not only one of the exterminators, but he does the voices of all the bugs. That, that one scene on the subway, his face is always burned into my brain. Just that, uh, yeah, just like the way his eyes look. I think he's amazing in this as well. Do you, we, we brought up Terry Gilliam before in uh, with Fear and Loathing, but do you not feel that um, the way Bruce Willis hallucinates the voice in 12 Monkeys is in some way influenced by... The way the bugs talk, like to me, I felt like it was the same actor, even though it probably isn't. I I, I cannot recall, though. Uh, looking up on IMDb, it is not the same actor. Well, there's definitely a similarity there. Do you have anything uh, further to add before we move on, Corey? Uh, I'm good. I'm just going to tell people at home that if they're wondering uh, about the excitement for Julian Rishings, uh, he is best known as Bucky Haight from Hardcore Logo, or the guy that the gets funniest, the guy that gets cubed in the opening scene of Vincenzo Natale's Cube, and uh, he's in the Red Violin and uh, a number of other fine films. Yes, and he's always great, uh, whether he's dressed like a man or a woman. So uh, with that, we will uh, push along to um, Michael Winterbottom's very uh, breezier, I I think is the right word, uh, adaptation (laughs) of of Tristram Shandy, um, or the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy, which he is here renamed as Tristram Shandy, a cock and bull story. Uh, And like The Naked Lunch, it is a very meta driven adaptation um, in that the overly redonkulously thick novel uh, I'm going to assume no one has read the novel of the four of us but maybe I'm assuming wrongly but the fact that they adapted it into a 94 minute movie is astounding and the fact that the actual Tristram Shandy probably only comprises about 35 minutes of this 94 minute movie and very much like uh, the novel which is about a guy trying to narrate his own life that never even gets to the point of his own birth or finishing by the because he digresses in such fashion it is fascinating to watch this movie in that it starts off as an adaptation uh, with some fourth wall breaks and then eventually shells outward 
to the film production of that adaptation, and then it shells further outward to the life of the actor um, who is uh, um, who is playing the lead part. Um, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, so uh, I guess we should go around the table again. Um, maybe, uh, starting with, uh, Bob, then Corey, then Patrick, and, and talk about how you first encountered this film. Um, yeah, I would have seen this, uh, again, about a decade or so ago and, uh, enjoyed it. I, uh, counter to, I don't know if it was Corey or Patrick saying before, I liked it more upon the revisit. I mean, I saw it more as a, very much a parallel to filmmaking itself, kind of a commentary on, on the process of it and how, like you said, it digresses and finds new corners and, and, goes down all these different paths and and i really kind of love the fact that um it, it you know it never really even became a film in and of itself just like that the book it never really became his life story he kept on going on all these paths the film was very much the same way and there's so much humor in it too i mean i, I guess part of it you have to really enjoy steve coogan and rob bryant bryant in their kind of uh, back and forth repartee but uh, i i very much do because i like the trip a great deal um, so this, this film just worked gangbusters the second time around for me. Um, I first became a fan of, uh, Winterbottom with, uh, I think for a lot of people, the opening door was 24 hour party people, which also stars Steve Coogan, which was definitely one of my favorite movies of that year. And so, um, when this movie came around, I was just happy to jump into it cause I saw both the same names were attached and at, I think it was like 2006 when it came out. And at that time, I hated it. I absolutely hated every minute of this movie. I thought it was like the slowest, most boring, most pointless thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And it took uh, a number of years, actually. What it took specifically was it took um, uh, actually watching um, Steve Coogan's other shows, um, specifically uh, Knowing Me, Knowing You, and I'm Alan Partridge, um, with a, a slight dash of some of his other stuff going on, like the Tony Farino and Saxondale and all this stuff, which isn't as good, but, you know, and then some of his Hollywood career, I suppose, which gets name-dropped here and there within uh, Tristram Shandy, specifically uh, a certain Jackie Chan film. Um, but uh, I did like it much, much better years later after knowing Coogan's later material, and even more so now after having seen The Trip, which kind of carries the Bride and Coogan thing much, much further. Uh, going back to this um, was probably the most I've liked Tristram Shandy uh, to date. Um, I still think that I have some problems with it, and I think it's because um, Coogan and Bryden, for me, are the real draw of the film, or even kind of Coogan's kind of really kind of depressed, uh, megalomaniac kind of um, needing to be the star, but not, not understanding he's not really the star of the movie he's the star of. Um, so I, I think... Um, the Tristram Shandy thing is a nice reflection on the on the dynamic of those two people, but the actual kind of movie within the movie itself um, really doesn't do a lot for me. And some of the other stuff is kind of filler to get to the really good Coogan and Bryden stuff. So uh, yeah, I, I, I think I saw this when it first came to DVD, and that was about the time you know I was obsessed with the rest of development, and I was I was sort of just discovering you know. Uh, metafictional kind of stuff and it's sort of that postmodern self-referential humor and I was really obsessed with it and I was really enamored with Tristram Shandy just because of that just because it was self-referential and it was a movie that never got started about a book that about a man telling his life story and that never gets started and 
that for me was enough. And I was just like, oh, this movie's so amazing and clever. And watching it now, I it really does feel like it, it's a it's it's a clever idea in search of a larger point. Uh, I think it's I think if you were going to adapt, if you had to adapt Tristram Shandy, this is probably one of the more clever ways to do it. But I don't think it necessarily like I think a lot of especially the parts that I like the most even are just it's more typical uh, not Hollywood because it's a British production, but that sort of uh, Hollywood vanity and that sort of satire of the filmmaking process that you've seen in a, you know a million other movies. Uh, and that specifically doesn't really have anything to do with Tristram Shandy as a story. I think it has more to do with sort of the comic persona of Steve Coogan as sort of a self-involved, uh, you know, kind of uh, dick, which is, uh, I am, I will give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that it's just a comic persona, <laughs> but uh, I don't know Steve Coogan. It's all, about as I, much a comic persona as Michael Ian Black being a self-involved dick as a comic persona. <laughs> okay, so not very much at all. Um, <laughs> well, it's super um, self-aware. Like, there's no right, point that any of this stuff was accidental. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, yes. And so, yeah, I agree. All the scenes with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon are very funny. I think Rob Brydon is doesn't amaze. Like, one of the hardest things to do uh, is to te- is to be some is to be funny playing a character who's not who thinks he's funny but isn't that funny. And I think Rob Brydon, the way that he gets on Steve Coogan's nerves and the way Rob Brydon, sometimes his jokes can, this is the character, not necessarily the man. I don't, again, I don't know about him as an actual comic performer, but like the way his jokes will come across, I mean, in this and especially in the trip, but like they'll come across as kind of hacky, but then he'll keep committing to them and it comes around and it ends up being funny. And of course, Steve Coogan's reaction to him uh, and not, not ever wanting to given an inch like what well, the best parts in the beginning of this movie is uh rob bryden makes some kind of joke about the color of his teeth and steve coogan accidentally like let's slip a laugh and then he goes yeah yeah you're getting laughs but uh you're not cut fixing the color it's like he automatically has to cut him <laughs> like i think all that stuff is great but in general i don't see a larger point i don't care about steve coogan's romance with the i forget the the, the one yeah. the one yeah the one woman on the production i forget what she does I don't, she likes Fassbender. That's what she yeah, yeah, no, the, the cinephile. Well, yeah, she's. She, I think she's specifically designed for us three or for us four people to fall. <laughs> Sadly, <in love>. yes. <laughs> but uh, I, I, like all that, I don't really see a point. I don't. I, you definitely don't see enough of the Tristram Shandy story for any of those scenes to really. It doesn't make sell the a book. Lot of, right? Yeah, it certainly doesn't sell the book, and it and it and some of it's kind of funny, but a lot of it's really broad body kind of 18th like 18th century interpretation of humor which is eh, maybe not what i want to see i'm sure like a baby idea. having his cock mutilated in the 18th century was really really great <laughs> oh it was it was positively ribald i'm sure mm-hmm. but um yeah it's just a lot about this movie i just really i found myself not caring about this time i watched it Okay, so my I, I saw this. Uh, I was a big fan of Winterbottom. I've always been a big fan of Winterbottom. In fact, when you guys were doing your Directors Club podcast, you lovingly invited me on the uh, on, on that show to talk about Michael Winterbottom. Um, That's right. And 
the uh, the Rob Brydon Coogan thing is actually teased in Twenty Four Hour Party People. Rob Brydon has a very small part, and part of me believes that there was so much sizzle in those two scenes in Twenty Four Hour Party People that this may have resulted from it. Um, I caught this film the first time at the Toronto International Film Festival uh, with a twelve hundred person audience, and the actors and directors were there to continue riffing like the movie ends with them doing al pacino impressions and then they came up on stage and continued to banter uh um so there's i guess i saw it under very good circumstances in fact for that year it was one of my favorite films but i have come maybe to a degree uh like patrick to i just feel that when i described it earlier on as being breezy I mean that very in a very positive, earnest way. The thing I love about this movie is that it um, it isn't hammering home a larger point. I mean, it it's making points, whether you call them trite or not, is, I guess depends on your perspective. But what I really love is the movie's just fun to hang out with. Like, it's, it's a hanging out movie. And not just the Bryden, uh, Coogan stuff, but... Being on set, like what I actually find the first 20 minutes of the movie to be the hardest part outside of them in the makeup chair when he actually starts walking through the Tristram Shandy novel. Um, I find that you know it's okay, but once it pulls back and you have um, okay, Jeremy Northam as the director and uh, Naomi Harris and all the Oh, in fact, so many Michael Winnebottom regulars like Shirley Henderson and Dylan Moran and and um, uh, Benedict Wong and various guys that show up in other Winterbottom films are Shirley the cast- Henderson being well known as Moaning Myrtle from the Harry Potter. Yeah, or series. or Bridget Jones's best friend. Um, but she's like that's kind of great because it also feels like a Winterbottom repertory company putting on a show i mean this when you said that there's been a million movies that make fun of hollywood as much as i like christopher guest and his troupe i mean their version of um for your consideration is is not particularly great this does everything that that movie kind of is trying to do way better and the fact that they have half of the movie is about reconstructing a battle scene that no one in their right mind cares about it's almost like what you were talking about with biopics of having that scene where you have to tell people that the person that they came and are fully aware is awesome is awesome the fact that they have so much of the production invested in this battle scene is is funny to me and 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 the fact that the that evening when coogan wanders around in that battle scene it just strikes me as it is in a movie about frivolity and passive aggressive sniping and all the physical comedy that goes on the way he wanders around in that evening there does seem to be like an element of truth there's a it's not all negative there's a lot of positive like joy in in this movie the the pleasure on on the uh uh, producer and director's face when they just randomly call jillian anderson's agent and caster in the process of about a four-minute conversation. There's a certain 
wonderfulness to these weird serendipitous things that happen in life well, or filmmaking or creating or like like if Naked Lunch is a movie about the individual being destroyed by the act of creation. Um, Tristram Shandy is the loopy act of creating with a big committee <laughs> and well, all the, the stuff that it's goes. Funny with that it. you mentioned for your consideration because. That's a movie I've kept coming back to, hoping it would be good, but it, it doesn't get it, much it's better. Just and there, I think the problem yeah. is that for your considerations, the biggest problem to me is hierarchy. Is that they ever they expand? He expanded his cast so big that he couldn't properly like put a dominant person or have different tiers of people in importance in that film. And ultimately, nothing becomes very important. Whereas I think in Tristram Shandy, it succeeds in keeping a level of hierarchy in all his repertory and. I think that's one of the fun things about it in regards to the Coogan Bryden dynamic is how like they're both fighting for screen time in the literal sense of what you're watching right here. Um, and also in their impressions, trying to one up each other as it continues through the trip, obviously in this most famous scene. Um, but also um, throughout uh, Tristram Shandy as um, Coogan's part seems to get smaller and smaller. And um, they're having the arguments and uh, Bryden's talking about how he was going to be the lead when it was on TV and um, when Julian Anderson come in, um, she almost kind of completely upsets the dynamic that they thought he had set because they had this other love story to the film that wasn't there. And uh, I just think that the uh, the knowledge of the hierarchy um, by Winterbottom combined with like the upsetting of a hierarchy in like this faux film and watching it fall apart um, for many reasons, including that, is is interesting. I, I yeah, I'll agree. I, uh, I I would definitely say this movie is better than for your consideration. Um, again, I I would even maybe go as far as to say is one of the reasons I didn't like it this much around is because the past two days I I just finished uh, I watched uh, the entirety of season two of uh, HBO's Veep, and I don't know if any of you guys have seen Veep, oh, but yes. it's one of the funniest shows of all time. Is and as far that the as, one with Kelsey Grammer? Uh, no, it's no, that, uh, that'd be boss. Julie Louis Dreyfus. It's it's the U.S. version of uh, Thick of It, pretty much. Um, but You'll as love far it, as even though it's, as far as uh, as far as a comedy about egomaniacs and people who, who egos need to be tended to, and about all the people who surround them like satellites and are tending to everything, and all the conflict conflict that causes, like that is one of the funniest things that's ever existed. It's one of, certainly one of the funniest shows that's ever been on HBO. Probably one of the funniest shows of all time. And then when I went to this, it was like <laughs> it was almost it was almost not fair to compare them because Veep is so amazing, and this uh, uh, not the same dynamic. It's not as brutally mean spirited and everything, but it's it's a, it plays a similar game, not nearly as well. Well, it's um, certainly not fair. I mean, it's not mean spirited at all in many ways. I mean, I, I I think it's a lot more than just a commentary on Hollywood and filmmaking. I mean, it's it's very much about you know Stephen Fry gives the theme of the book like about an hour in. He got like he has like this minute little uh, little talk, and he and he really kind of basically says you can't plan your life, and you see that so much throughout the movie. Tristram Shandy, his father, Steve Coogan, everybody in this movie tries to plan their life, and they can't. It's all chaotic, and I think as he says, it's amorphous, and I, I think that really comes through in the movie. Even at one point, I think uh, Rob Ryan's talking about these headlines in the newspaper about all these countries trying to control other countries. And it spills out into war. And I, I really love the way he kind of plays on these themes in, into the movie. And it's kind of like, you know, can a movie really capture the essence of a book? It's really trying to nail down this essence of a book. It can just spin off into something that's not even close to the book. And that's what this movie well, is. I, I think that's a that, really nice way of saying that. It literally yeah, digresses that, out of itself. 
I, I think the filmmaking metaphor, that actually is one of the stronger points of the movie for sure, is that nothing, nothing, uh, nothing spells out the chaos of life than a major film production and all of the insane shit that happens in it and all of the drafts of scripts that go through and everything uh, and how, you know, directionless and like literally they're, they're trying to figure out if a shitty looking battle scene is funnier or less funny. And it's, it's like these insane conversations that, that happen when you really don't know what you're doing. Like that I think is a really strong thing. I think it's also just, it is, but I mean, it is well-worn territory for sure. I but, mean, it's, but this movie is certainly not state made. Do you would, not, you know, do you not feel though that it, 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 it does hammer this weird point about family um, that, works quite well like the idea that um when kelly mcdonald or jenny uh, steve coogan's wife comes to the set with their son she she just cannot get in there like the the film family is dominating and the reaction of steve coogan to the infant as a prop in the movie is more heartfelt than his reaction to his own like he's when he sings um, "Bring Back My Bonnie to Me," it's almost like he's acting. And when he reacts to the child that he has to act with, it's almost like he honestly gets it. And the fact that he has to keep putting off his wife because there's so many demands on the set, or that there's so many relationships that have to be appeased on set, is I think that has not been mined that deeply in all of these movies about filmmaking. Maybe not necessarily movies about filmmaking, but the idea of daddy, you need to work less and enjoy your family. That's been mine even more than movies about filmmaking. And also, I honestly, maybe I, maybe I feel like it was conflicting a bit with um, the the Steve Coogan as an arrogant, self centered jerk comic persona doesn't necessarily give you or it didn't necessarily give me a lot of reason to to like really care care for him when he can't manage family and work it's because i it just makes you think oh it's his own fault he's just a jerk like it it doesn't it didn't necessarily make necessarily make me feel bad for him it just made me feel bad for his wife i didn't really feel him struggling with it because his character had already been so firmly set as a self-centered uh egomaniac well and that's part of like that's part of why the performance is so fiercely good because Coogan doesn't soften that in any way shape or form he dives in completely and I think that does play into a pretty well established British tradition of comedy from uh, you know certainly the office is, is is a big but all of the different Coogan shows that um, Corey mentioned earlier on all the Alan Partridge stuff he does play into his comedy comes from thoroughly shaking down his own ego on screen even as he tries to prop it up it's the whole i don't know if they know if they actually mention you know sisyphus in the movie but then there's that element to it like you now, can't push well, sand uphill you know when we talk about the sort of the authenticity about issues regarding there but i mean like do you think that the uh dream sequence in this film kind of undermines what it's achieving because i find Not at I, all. I can I, I find when he, you know, it's a little bit, you could sort of pass a lot of this movie off almost as a fake documentary until that happens. Okay, you have to remind I, me again I, about I, the dream I, sequence. I, I, I he has the dream sequence of himself, like when, when they show up and he's he's tiny within the womb. Oh, set. right, 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 yeah. right. 
Yeah, but it's... I think the movie goes through more reality breaking things than that. I think the, the the when they talk about the black page and literally the screen cuts to black and you hear them talking, oh, I don't know, audiences are like that. I think there's plenty of wink in the movie that well isn't there uh, someone saying that if you want the full interview uh with tony wilson yeah. the, the character who steve coogan literally played in 24 hour period people it will be as an extra on the dvd i don't know if it is yeah, actually an extra on my everything DVD. the same way i think it's more that's more kind of a quirk whereas Cute. the dream sequence is more of a complete kind of break into fictional storytelling I, I would almost say the opposite, if only because breaking the fourth wall is less common than dream sequences. But, uh, I mean, you know, obviously it, it disrupted the tone for you, but I didn't have that problem. Him either. I, I think, you know, by the time he talked to the camera in so many different personas, I, I was I was fine with the dream sequence coming in. I think that uh, that worked perfectly well for me. Okay, I guess I just saw a lot of the, the narration as, like, sort of cutting into uh, what they were actually filming. Like, you're not actually watching a movie where he's playing it. Like, you're watching the movie of the movie when you're in those scenes. So to me, those might as well have been a part of the documentary. Like, you're just seeing footage. Well, I, I But think... it is an action... I mean, it's, it's shot handheld, but they don't acknowledge the cameras in the behind-the-scenes stuff. It's not actually presented as a mockumentary. I don't know. I think I've seen enough documentaries where people acted as if they were in doc- mockumentaries that... <laughs> I don't make a difference anymore. And I'm thinking well, specifically of the Metallica documentary. But I, I right. think that's part of the delight of the movie in that it keeps dancing around all of those things. And it, it kind of like tries to be a little bit of everything because you, you see them. I mean, the movie ends after they watch the movie inside the movie and then comment of how the movie turned out, even though it's not actually the movie, it's the movie within the movie. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I find that there's a grace in how they handle that, um, even more elegantly than Soderbergh's full frontal, which I'm also a fan of and other films that have attempted that structure. I think deep down, this movie wants you to have fun while you're watching it. And it, it is mean spirited as, uh, Steve Coogan's ego and and you know the sniping between him and Bryden and and the fact that Naomi Harris is the only person that really has any clue about um, you know art in cinema on this whole film set. Uh, like I, I think I don't think the movie's being abrasive to any of those things. It's it's jolly. The movie's jolly and. I would- it is a little bit that. abrasive it's towards. Nice it's a little bit abrasive towards um, interviewers and other sorts of people because everyone who encounters Tony Wilson wants to make. Sorry, everyone who encounters um, Steve Coogan wants to make a aha joke or, uh, or or something along those lines, and he's really kind of not going along yeah. with it. Well, so well really who's the of... joke on? I mean, I'm certainly guilty of doing the same thing when I've done interviews with filmmakers. Like, you just want to soften the I don't mood, know. The joke right? is both on the interviewer who thinks they're doing something unique or doing something yeah, but, fun. Yeah, but it's the it's same also joke. joke on the other person for be, you know taking themselves too seriously. Right. That they can't acknowledge their success. I, I think for I think that sort of thing is just very observant. I just I, if you're doing press junkets, if you're doing interviews and stuff you just hear the same thing over and over again and it just like that's that's just something i'm sure steve coogan deals with in real life all the time 
But they, they and, do it to, uh, they don't just do it to like the nameless characters, they do it to Tony Wilson, who's supposed to be kind of like, based on having done a movie on him, should be sort of elevated above those other people, but he still wants to do the, uh, the same sort of uh, like, kind of lame article title. That's, that's called confidence in your filmmaking, <laughs> is what that is, when you can take down your heroes. I like how it plays uh, kind of suddenly was talking about uh, the script writing as well. So you know the one scene when they're they're actually calling Gillian Anderson, and you've got that five way split screen with uh, Gillian Anderson, her agent, the director, the producer, and the script writer is off on the side, and they're all talking about getting Gillian Anderson the movie, how great it's going to be, and he's just eating his dinner quietly. He's just sitting there, he's eating. He, there's no kind of reaction. Everybody else is making decisions on the movie except for the script writer who's just eating his food. And I kind of like how that sort of played up with the, well, it's kind of out of his hands now. Right. <laughs> and everyone else sounds so phony on that call. It's like really, really stark compared to how everybody else converses in the movie. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I didn't want to ask, uh, maybe talk briefly about sort of in general these two films and the act of adapting something. And do you think, do you think that filmmakers or any artist who's adapting something from one medium to another. Do you think they're beholden to anything at all? Do you think they should be required to depict a certain amount of what actually happens in a work? Do you think they should be required to capture the same tone? Or do you think that adaptation should be as free and freewheeling and out there and far from the source material as the filmmakers want. Well, personally, I'm a huge fan of Paul Verhoeven and Ed Neumeier's adaptation of Starship Troopers, which not only doesn't depict anything in the book properly, it goes out of its way to be the exact opposite of the book. And that is, to me, the most daring approach when you just heighten the ridiculousness of something to the point where you now have the exact opposite message. But... Personally, I look at, again, I look at Starship Troopers as Ed Neumeier and Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers. I look at Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. I look at David Cronenberg's The Naked Lunch. I look at Michael Water Winterbottom's Tristram Shandy. I, I, I think once, it, once you start ev- uh, evolving something from one medium to another, it becomes the property of the author of that medium. I mean, clearly you make, you know, people are aware that it's an adapted property, but people expecting to get the same experience from a book when they watch a movie is ludicrous. Like I would rather someone give me a very shaded slanted iconic point of view of that material than try to what? fake your way into being an honest there's no such thing as an honest adaptation it always it's, is what it is it really is a case-by-case basis i mean uh just offhand since elmore leonard just died i'm thinking of the horrible job be cool was as far as a straight adaptation and how they just ruined it by trying to make it kind of modern and, and change things that were completely unnecessary just to placate certain actors but on the other hand i'm thinking of you know, like something like Scott Pilgrim, which is, I think is a great adaptation that is as good as Wright could have done with putting seven books that has all these characters into one thing. But at the same time, when, as soon as he did that, it, it, it like no longer passed the Bechdel test because a number of characters got dropped or their threads became no longer important because it's a, a do it's a young man's tale or something like that. But I also think of like other movies where I wish they had taken their adaptation and gone further 
and this may seem completely random, but I think of, um, you know, Frank Oz's The Stepford Wives? Um, like, that's a book that I love, and the 70s movie is kind of crappy, um, but when that movie came out with Nicole Kidman and, and uh, Bette Midler and John Lovitz and, uh, and Christopher Walken's people, I thought, oh my God, he's going to make another musical just like, you know, um, Little, Shop. Little Shop of Horrors, you know, and, and the thing is, a, a musical of the Stepford Wives would have been amazing, and he had the cast for it, and he didn't do it. So I, I curse Frank Oz to this day that he didn't <laughs> ad, ad, adapt his material further. I had no idea Frank Oz directed that movie. I never saw it, but I, I, I mean... Um, it's a complete two-and-a-half-star movie that just fades to obscurity because he didn't make it a musical. I think the, uh, the only responsibility I see is that you be inspired by whatever you're going to be adapting. And whether that ends up being just a really well-told version of it or something completely different, like we've been talking about for the last couple of hours, uh, that doesn't matter. I think you just have to be inspired by it. You know, mm-hmm. people say that you know a certain movie or a retelling of a book or something ruined the initial one. I, I, I don't, I just don't understand that. The initial one's still there. It's, it's something new. And if you've been inspired by the initial one, that's that's all I can ask for. Can we think of adaptations though that clearly had absolutely no inspiration? Other than well, sort of uh, obvious reboots that happen for contractual purposes, and then uh, aren't there authors like Philip K. Dick whose work is usually so loosely ad- adapted that it's uh, hardly recognizable? Well, Blade Runner uh, is a good example to bring out there. I mean, there's almost no similarity between Blade Runner the film and Blade Runner the book. Um, one is incredibly secular, and the other one has deep religious undertones and and they're so plot wise tone wise everything is different yet i i kind of like both well i uh, so for me i think often i would go as far as to say is if you are too close to the original material then it's then it's probably not going to have as much of a chance as being good it's probably like if when i think of all the bad adaptations they're often too close i think of something like watchmen or I think oh, of like the I Harry Potter movies or movies that don't have their own life because they're so beholden to the source material. Like Harry Potter movies, I, I cannot sit through because they're, they're so relentlessly paced that no scene ever has any time to breathe and no characters are able to exist as humans. Like there's it's, it's Harry just, Potter it's a seven point one has a lot of room to breathe. All right, well, I haven't no, got, no, no, I haven't no, no. But 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 what that. Patrick's saying, I, I, I like that idea because I've all I, I'm completely on the same page in that the Harry Potter franchise now I'm I'm speaking from only having seen two of the eight films but they they always felt like the committee the Harry Potter filmic machine trumped any individual voice of any creator inside the project like Alfonso Cuarón's movie does not even feel like an Alfonso Cuarón movie at all like yeah, it's not, it's completely beholden to that yeah Oh, I really love. It does come across as the strongest of the three. I mean, there's certainly a little bit more of his of his role that comes out. I I like the Harry Potter movies overall. Uh, pretty much straight through all eight, I, I I like them. Um, I I can't really go to bat for them either way. I mean, I enjoy them. I think they're decent retellings of the book, and I think they serve their purpose. Were they inspired? Eh, not so much. Are they travesties? I don't think so at all. I think they just do a, a very you know strong serviceable telling of the story but i so so living with an absolute harry potter like convention uh going 
young woman <laughs> who is probably within earshot of me right now, uh, she'll tell you that those adaptations are not good enough. <laughs> Maybe I but, shouldn't uh, have that conversation with her then. <laughs> yeah, but um, I actually really like The Watchmen, and I, I think he even managed to improve the ending by um, bringing it thematically towards something more relevant regarding Dr. Manhattan and nuclear power versus this random giant vagina alien that uh, was in the I, book. Now you're playing to, to me, <laughs> Corey. I'm completely on board with that. Uh, but it is a... The, the, the fascinating thing about The Watchmen is that the... Um, it, it doesn't translate well across mediums because there's so much, ironically, visual information and symbol pairings and and things inside the comic book pages that they just couldn't translate to the film uh and and that they get the tone wrong but i i must admit i like both versions of watchmen i i like the graphic novel for its art and and playfulness with its images and i like the film version for that fixing of the ending <laughs> and the the i i I actually think most of the actors are great to watch in in that movie. I find Watchmen to be a very fun. I think uh, he movie actually was quite inspired making the Watchmen. I think it just comes across with the sort of energy he was going across and his soundtrack selections over that. When you compare that, when he also did a one to one relationship, lifting things out of three hundred, and how kind of like everything kind of is just kind of. Unfortunate. I, I don't hate three hundred, but <laughs> I it <just> do. Kind <laughs> of sits sits dead on the screen a lot of the time. Yep. What kind of. Um, generic backgrounds and most of the stuff that makes 300 work to me if anything is kind of the kind of campy kind of uh, line readings or the performances or uh, some of the just design of it just it kind of for me the kind of things that I like about 300 almost work in spite of itself whereas I think Watchmen is a complete uh, like Snyder's actual true passion work of everything he's done and I know we're uh, sucker punch exists, but I'm going to pretend it doesn't. So. But can yeah, we? Well, I, okay, I, I don't want to get into an argument necessarily about individual uh, examples. I'm bringing up. I mean, these are my personal. I to me, Lifeline just Watchmen just feels super lifeless, and there's it's it it just feels again like it's it has to shove a lot into a little, and I think a lot of the performances are bad. And but that's uh, you guys, you know that you don't you don't have to agree <laughs> with me. But I think my larger point that I was trying to make. And I, I guess I assume that you guys would feel the same as about Watchmen. That's the only reason I brought it up uh, is that there are films where a filmmaker has a movie in their head and they want to make that movie, and then there are films where they want they read something, they read a book they like, and they go, "Oh, I would like to have made that," and then they just sort of put it into their medium. And I, I like punch, and it doesn't have Jackie to be Brown. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to, just thinking the it same have to thing. Be crazy like. Steven Spielberg's Jaws is not that far from Peter Benchley's novel, but where it does depart, it's it, it's clear that Spielberg had a very specific vision of how he wanted that story to, to play out. It doesn't have to be as you know drastic as Naked Lunch or anything like that, but the, I, I think you can often tell a difference between when someone just likes something so much they want to recreate it and when someone actually has a specific uh, vision for their own art that was just inspired by. Now, can we end this segment on uh, actually, like, if there are a particularly, uh, like I, I mentioned Starship Troopers, but um, a, a particularly favorite 
adaptation, whether it's straightforward or whether it's totally off the rails. I'll um, throw, uh, throw a straightforward one at you because I don't think we found uh, we've talked about a you know straightforward good one yet. But uh, the the Pride and Prejudice version that came out on BBC for TV, the six hour version with Colin Firth, strikes me as something that is you know very very straightforward. It's you know it's it's almost exactly in many ways what you would think, but it is really really well told and really well acted and six hours oddly enough flies by it, you know i never expected <laughs> talk to, to my wife it. who watches that religiously uh you know, i, I she, i'm hey, just happy that jennifer on. ellie uh is now yes. acting in feature films oh so so am i uh it, it's a great fantastic version of it, the best one i've seen agreed sure. um i already named jackie brown which is somewhere in the middle ground um really just kind of changing some of the characters around as far as kind of their backgrounds and stuff goes. But, but um, it, Persepolis. But, before we leave Jackie Brown, though, Corey, isn't it... I always found it fascinating that Perfume. despite all of the changes that Quentin Tarantino made, the fact that he, you know, threw in the Delphonics and made it kind of like a like a post-blaxploitation, like, like that kind of... Uh, that kind of genreifying that which Leonard never does, and and yet he doesn't feel like he totally captured the spirit of that book. When I read yeah, them, I mean, even though they took out the white supremacist and did everything, like I, I feel that the spirit of that book is totally there, and maybe that stems from the fact that Quentin Tarantino, for his entire career, is pretty much aspired to write like Elmore Leonard. So it just is a just a great match of of filmmaker and, and author, despite the fact that there have been literally dozens of great Elmore Leonard adaptations in for different reasons. But that one just feels like, yeah, that like someone said before, like if you go at it with honest passion, um, then it then it comes through. Um, I try to sneak in. Um, I, Perfume wasn't a very, like, it wasn't a huge hit. I don't think people really talk about it that much, but I thought that was a pretty decent adaptation um, I have read the book but I loved I loved the movie oh um it was one of the first books I truly really loved that I didn't wa- read because of school <laughs> um so it still has a you know I think when you have one of those first books that you read on your own they have a special place in your heart so when the movie kind of um succeeded for me it worked out that way um I even feel uh, um that Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil might be a controversial choice because I read the book for that after seen the movie which um i saw in its initial uh release and that book it cuts out multiple it's based on a true story but cuts out multiple trials and all these de- important details but i think when you watch the movie you still get the essence of it patrick um honestly there's most films are adaptations of something and i'm, I'm what i'm struggling to think of is something that i have a connection to both works and that i I, I, I like them both for different reasons. And for me, I think Naked Lunch is honestly uh, the closest. I mean, I, I can talk all day about all the things I don't like about the adaptation of, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or any Which number of uh, books that I, I... The one thing I do really like about the film adaptation of Hitchhiker's Guide is that the Vogons were bureaucrats, first and foremost, and I think that would have been lost in some other, like the BBC uh, adaptation and everything. But um, I, I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, there's obviously, there's, you know, Goodfellas, there's 2001 Space Odyssey, there's Old Boy, you know, there's Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, there's, 
Doctor Strange Love is 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 in part an adaptation of the the novel Red Alert. There's uh, the Servant. Uh, I mean, there's it's the I mean, the only thing they really have in common is that they don't require you to be a fan of the original material, and they don't even require you to be the kind of person who would be a fan of the original material because they're so much their own thing and uh you know they have strong direction goodfellas is probably a really interesting case because it's an adaptation of a nonfiction book that is probably the closest to the thing i said i don't like which is this happened and then this happened and it just sort of breathlessly runs through all of these events but it makes the breathless uh breakneck pace the part of it and it makes that the appeal and then also there are scenes like the murder of uh, was it is it Billy Bats, um, uh, where who they throw in their trunk. Anyway, we just uh, let like, you hang out to like, dry on that. There are, se- <laughs> there are sequences like that where the film really breathes, and you see them kill the guy, and then you see them deal with it, and you see them drive around, and then you see them they they go on a you know they meet his mom, and his mom is a painter, and she has that hilarious like painting like. It has those human moments where it can breathe so that that breakneck pacing doesn't feel. Whereas something like, I'd say, Casino is a movie I'm not a fan of at all because it doesn't have those kinds of scenes. Casino is just narration, narration, voiceover, voiceover, this scene, this scene, now this yeah. scene, now this well, scene. Like Casino is kind of like a challenge to see how far you can push that. I think Scorsese's gone on record of saying that they wanted to push that as far as they could go. Well, I... I, I just I think maybe it was also I mean I would say that Departed pushes that almost as far as Casino and I think Departed is way more successful of a movie but I would say again the Goodfellas is a good example of it doesn't matter uh, how close or far away you stray from the material or even the way the material is presented in the book it's about is the director putting his own stamp on it does this direct does the director have a vision for what this movie actually is other than a regurgitation of information for people who are too lazy to read. I don't think we can talk uh, about authors who are improved upon in film translations without mentioning Brett Easton Ellis. You mean Rules of Attraction? (laughs) Rules of Attraction, Less Than Zero, American Psycho, but not The Canyons, Kurt. I like The Canyons. Um... Well, the ultimate one of that is Godfather, right? Oh, well, Godfather and Jaws, they're pulp novels that became populist, but still high quality populist films that I think most people would say that the artistic value of the films is of greater merit than the artistic value of the books. And I would also say, uh, having read it just recently, Frankenstein, I'm not at all a fan of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but... James Whale's movie is amazing. Yeah, it totally. There's another one that it totally reinvents the main character. The main character in the in the James Whale, uh, Karloff's Frankenstein's monster is nothing like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein's monster. Actually, another one that kind of comes to mind is uh, the Village of the Damned, which was based off John Wyndham's Midwich Cuckoos, uh, an author in it that I love and a book that I love. Um, I, I thought the the '60s version of the film was was great. Um, anything else since then? Uh, not not a fan of the Carpenter best. version. It, it vivisex Kirstie Alley. Everyone has wanted to see that on screen <laughs> forever. 
I would I would add I'm amazed no one brought up uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, and I'm joking. Um, and but I would I would say the other uh, the two recent ones um, uh, that have been really failed to capture their novels in in the same way uh (laughs) don't go there um it would be uh the road the cormac mccarthy novel i i I, as much as i admire john hillcoat's adaptation it there was something utterly missing and i and i would say the same with mark romanek's uh never let me go which i i think is a beautiful movie with wonderful performances it just i don't know it 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 fails to capture that. Whereas on the other hand, no country for old men, which is as close of an adaptation as I've ever seen. Like, I mean, it feels almost one-to-one for the entire movie. And yet that worked that totally, uh, totally completely worked. Um, and, and I guess on the last note, I, I have high, high, high hopes for, uh, Jonathan Glazer's, um, under the Skin, uh, which is uh, a Scottish novel, um, and frankly, upon reading the novel, is in the same way that Never Let Me Go feels like. How do you adapt what you know versus what the characters know, and that dichotomy into a f- narrative feature? But I'm hoping that he can pull it off. I'm just since like- we mentioned Harry Potter, I would just also throw in um, uh, the adaptation of Golden Compass was one that sort of just didn't translate because those series of books are very highly acclaimed and have a level of sophistication and, and themes that they really had to water down to even get released. And the only way they probably could have succeeded is if they had gone the Game of Thrones route, which is too late now. Which, by many accounts, um, I've not read the Game of Thrones books, and I will never probably read the Game of Thrones books, but by many accounts, the decisions by the writers and, and, and like the, the on-the-ground people that are making in the TV show seem to be improving the novel rather than, which is weird because it's a fan property and usually fan properties go nuts when you do this. But for some reason, Game of Thrones, the HBO series seems to be fixing a lot of problems with its changing rather than creating problems with its fans. I mean, so just to tie it back to uh, Naked Lunch and some of what we were talking before, has anybody, and I haven't seen this yet, has anybody seen On the Road, Kerouac's um, novel, Come to Screen, and what they did with that? I, I can't look, even imagine. Like garbage. I can't even imagine watching the movie, particularly because I've never read the, like, the Dean Moriarty, like, the... the original publication of on the road i've never read that version which of course the film is adapted from i've only read the like where everyone goes by their real names the the original scroll version which so anytime someone talks about on the road and like you get this weird thing of oh yeah that character is this person i i much rather read the one where everyone is themselves but the book became famous and popular in the other version and the film is made on the other version but i don't know it as much as i like walter salz as a director and as much as i think his his adaptation of dark water is actually fantastic um which gets dragged over the coals i i didn't really get there yeah i mean with walter salz as the director that's one of the main reasons i ask is that you think that potentially there's gonna be something interesting here i didn't hear a lot of great things about it but i just want to know if any of you guys saw it Someone can make a bad double bill of that in Prozac Nation together and have a terrible night. 
I've, I've seen that, and that didn't work out so well for me. Also, I, 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 it just occurred to me, we should probably point out, we're talking about very different things when we're talking about something that's not adapted. If it's a novel to a film, that's very different than Game of Thrones, which is a novel to a TV series, Fair which enough. automatically frees up a lot of the problems that adaptations of longer you know, novels have. And I was thinking a lot of my favorite movies are adaptations of musicals on stage to musicals on screen. And it turns out those translate great. Because well, the same thing that makes a musical amazing to watch is amazing to watch on film as well. Well, you'd think that, but the people I know who are Broadway fans can be nastier than the <laughs> most rabid comic book fanboys that you know. I mean, yeah, between well, Les Mis and the producers, people get their claws out when they hold like Jean Valjean closer to their hearts than people do Batman, I assure you. Well, I mean, I, well, I, I'm specifically talking about the era in which people who could sing were also famous. So I'm specifically talking about the era uh, in, in which uh, stage musicals, like the 50s, the, like the 40s through early 60s. Um, because the problem is the thing that makes Les Mis great to watch on stage would have been great to watch on screen. But that thing happens to be singing. And, <laughs> and Russell Crowe. Uh, the best description I heard, I think it was Amy Nicholson, described it as he feels like he, he feels like the quarterback, like the football player that the high school theater like lets him in the play. <laughs> like he was completely outmatched in terms of singing by every other person, and he has this weird voice. And also, that's an example of a director who really had no specific vision for the story he was telling. I think Tom Hooper does a horrible job. In Les Mis. I That's I because he's like a horrible director. Um, I like Tom Hooper. That's a different the answer. the uh, but the last thing it's been said many times that um, novels are better at it, adapted into long form television and short stories are better adapted into films. Um, so maybe we can uh, leave it on that note. Um, Thank you so much, guys, for uh, coming and, and digging deep into uh, these films, particularly the Cronenberg one. Um, there will be, hopefully sooner rather than later, another episode of this uh, movie club uh, recorded. I'm aiming to have it published before Halloween, so that's, for this podcast, is a tight timeline. Um, so the next uh, episode uh, will be... Um, on Andre Zualski's 1981 uh, film Possession uh, with Sam Neill and Isabella Johnny and, and uh, uh, also on 1971 Ken Russell uh, movie The Devils. So uh, we're talking pretty arty kind of horror film uh, from from yesteryear. So I'm hoping that works out before Halloween. Um, but in the meantime, uh, you should, you feel free to, um, plug where you can be found in and around the internet. Um, maybe starting with Bob. Uh, again, I write for eternal sunshine, the logical mind and row three, uh, hopefully have another blind spot uh, series coming up, uh, hopefully next week on cabaret and a star is born, uh, pairing the two of them this month. Um, uh, thanks again for having me on the show. Uh, I can be, you can hear our podcast at criticalmasscast.com. Uh, we're on iTunes. Um, I, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Corey Pierce Art. Uh, and my website is Corey-Pierce.com if you want to look at some pretty pictures. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, if you want to continue with our discussion and watch two, a double header about adapted movies, uh, do as I did and watch Adaptation and Gentleman Broncos as soon as possible. And uh, I am the co-host of Directors Club Podcast. You can find that at directorsclubpodcast.com. You can find it on iTunes, Directors Club Podcast. Um, I write for the blog there. They're not as often as I should. Uh, I have my own viewing journal, which I sporadically keep up with, uh, where I write you know, sort of short capsule reviews of most everything I see. Uh, recently, I gave a B-minus to Galaxy Quest, so maybe you wouldn't be so into that. But uh, that is Martha Marcy Nash and Young WordPress.com. And uh, oh, one more thing. I was recently, I did a list of underrated dramas for this uh, site, this blog, uh, Rupert Pupkin Speaks.blogspot.com. And he has people uh, sort of write up brief uh, summaries of some of their favorite underrated uh, dramatic films. Um, and uh, I recently did something there. So if you go to rupertpupkinspeaks.blogspot.com, you could uh, scroll down a little bit. You'll see my list. That's uh, nice. In which I say that, in which I say that uh, Blair Witch Project is an underrated drama. So uh, again, maybe my opinion take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> well, that's uh, lovely. I am uh, Kurt Halfyard, and I can generally be found around uh, row three or twitch film uh this podcast will be hosted by uh row three even if you found it at the um blogger um movie club podcast blogger website uh where we where we uh sort of have a front for the show um and uh hopefully if this is the first one you've tuned in you can uh, check out past episodes or uh watch um like I said, Possession and the Devils, and uh, look forward to the next episode. Um, and for all of us, thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.